trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. In the movie The Godfather, the heads of New York five crime families gather around a table to stop the gang war that has literally cost lives and made businesses suffer. The scene in the movie takes about six minutes. In the real world, things are much more complicated. My guest today is an internationally known expert on the subject of peacemaking and conflict resolution. Al Plaslin Azardam is the dean of George Mason University's Jimmy and Rosalind Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution. He has more than 20 years of field research in such places as Afghanistan, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Lebanon, Somalia, and many other dangerous places. And he has undertaken numerous projects funded by the U.S. Institute of Peace and the European Union. As we affectionately call him, Dean Alp, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, look, I find it really interesting to have this conversation with you here today, given the challenges on the world stage. And so I'm really, really excited to talk to you about many of the issues that are going on today. I find it interesting that you and I have something in common. I see from your background that your initial field of study was civil engineering. And as you know, I'm an engineer as well. So tell me how you turn that into a career devoted to peace building and conflict resolution. Well, yes, my seem odd, but in fact, the field of peace and conflict studies is really so multidisciplinary that it's not that unusual. We need people from all disciplines to resolve conflicts and build peace. So my journey took such a direction during my PhD in the UK, as my research was on the utilization of infrastructure rebuilding as a peace-building process in the mm. context of Bosnia-Herzegovina. So the main premise of my research was quite simple. Considering that lifelines like water, uh, electricity, and transportation are needed by all in divided societies, so their reconstruction could be used as an opportunity for peace-building. As also I say to my students, during my civil engineering degree, they taught us how to build bridges, and I now build bridges between communities. <laughs> Outstanding. That is really cool. And when we say conflict resolution, we're not just talking about ending violence, but conflict in all forms. Is that right? Absolutely. Physical violence is only part of the challenge. You can bring that to hold. But then the question is, what's next? We also need to focus on the structural and cultural violence that different population groups face on a daily basis. So in other words, we need to focus on the socioeconomic, legal, and political injustices that exist. We need to address the root cause of the conflict. So in a way, ending violence, physical violence, is only the beginning of negative peace. So what matters is that whether we could turn that into to positive peace by addressing injustices. This is what peace building is supposed to be, a transformational experience that is achieved in collaboration with all segments of the society. Let's first address the elephant in the room. <laughs> okay? So Russia's war in the Ukraine yes. is in its fifth month 
Yes. And I, I, I don't know that anybody saw that one coming. But I'm curious, from a person who has devoted his life to peace building, was there any doubt in your mind that this conflict could not be avoided? In my opinion, almost all wars can be prevented. I think we are made to believe that the Ukraine war was inevitable and it was only option left on the table. Hmm. Yes, that wasn't much what the Ukrainians could do once their country was reinvaded by Russia. Right. However, before all that happened, one wonders whether there was a genuine political will at the global level to prevent this war. So I somehow failed to see that. But if you understand and read the analysis on Vladimir Putin, it was very, very clear that a part of his goal was to bring back together as much of the prior Soviet Union that he could. So in my mind, it was very clear that his plans were to eventually take Ukraine and then, or at least stand up a government that was sympathetic to Russia mm -hmm. and then move on to the next state and the next state and the next state, right? I agree with you on that, but the thing is, then the Western polity should have read Putin's threats more effectively. Look, turning a blind eye to the annexation of Crimea a few years ago was in a way an open invitation for this last invasion. So there were things happen before this war. And what happened or what didn't happen in a way created the conditions for this war. So I think we shouldn't forget that. I think it's really important. And also, we need to remember that Ukraine has been knocking the European Union's door for years for a membership. And they didn't get that. If they had become a member of the EU years ago, that could have provided them with a fairly strong shield to protect their country from the Russian aggression, hmm. right? They didn't do that, but then the NATO membership became an option, right? All those things really don't make sense in a way. Yes, Putin had his own goals, but on the other side, I think uh, the West, particularly Europeans, could they have done a lot more to prevent this war? I think that's the point that we need to remember. I believe that if there's a will for peace, there's never a shortage of options. And I think that's really important to remember. In the end, I'm going to be honest with you, Alp. I think everybody knew this was coming, and people were just hoping that a better situation would prevail. You know, looking back, perhaps people say, yes, it was inevitable. We will never know whether this was inevitable, right? Why then the West really didn't try harder, didn't put a kind of a unified reaction for the annexation of Crimea a few years ago? You know, hmm. everybody kind of said, well, that's fine. So you are encouraging the aggression in that way. You are saying that, well, okay, for Russians, you know, come and annexing a certain part of Ukraine, that's okay. That's really encouraged Putin to say, well, actually, perhaps I can, you know, invade the entire Ukraine. Take it a little bit more, yes. right? No, that's exactly right. So you wrote an interesting article recently in which you explain how an international agreement signed in 1936 yes. is preventing this war from being even worse. So tell me how the Montreux Convention regarding the regime of the Straits has enabled Turkey to maintain some semblance of peace. The Montreux Convention gives Turkey control over the water route between the Black Sea, which is home to a major Russian naval force, and the Mediterranean Sea and beyond. 
Mm. So, as you say, it was signed in 1936, and, and it's really an important agreement for Turkey because it was almost like the last piece of the puzzle in its full sovereignty after its independence war in the, uh, in the early 1920s. But for the regional peace, it's really important because it sets limits on the passage of civilian vessels and military warships through the Dardanelles and the Bosphorus Straits. So Turkey, for example, can close the straits to warships of belligerent parties in wartime. Any country with coastline on the Black Sea need to give advance notice if they intend to send warships through the straits. And there are a number of conditions and restrictions with their size and type. So in a way, Turkey has that tool to control the whole navigation through the straits. And you know, having the right to close the straits, in a way, is a kind of a good way of regulating what happens with the use of warships, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, in a way, that gives the Turkey an important position vis-a-vis Russia and Ukraine. And it's interesting that it's really one of the rare countries today that's able to talk to both countries and act as a peacemaker between President Zelensky and President Putin. So a convention which was signed years ago, decades ago, and having an impact for the protection of regional peace, I think it shows that we shouldn't lose our faith for diplomacy and international law. They can really play an important role for the protection of peace. I'm going to ask you a question that is going to seem a little provocative, and I'm really interested in your feedback, and then I'll kind of explain to you why I'm asking it. So this might seem like an odd question, but is there a case to be made that all the actors here, even NATO, don't want this war to end, or at least not end quickly? Well, in fact, this is not an odd question at all. In fact, this is the question that we should all ask. It's a really important question, because let's think about this in a different way. Who are the winners and losers of the current situation, right? So needless to say that my heart goes with Ukrainians and what they've been experiencing. But even if they win this war, I think they've already lost so much. That's they right. Experience so much human suffering of all shapes and forms, right? So if they even they win this war, it's not really winning. Their country has been really destroyed so much. Let me stop you there. Sure. Let me say something about that. Obviously, you cannot put back the loss of human life, right? Yes. Once those lives are gone, they are gone. Yes. And that's really the toll. Absolutely. As it relates to their cities and their communities and their towns and hamlets. All of that can be rebuilt. And I contend to you that if it ended today, it would be rebuilt by the world. The world would contribute tremendously to the rebuilding of Ukraine, akin to what we saw in Japan after World War II, right? And akin to what we saw in Europe after World War II. I think the world would come together to rebuild Ukraine. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, rebuilding infrastructure and buildings, schools, hospitals. I mean, you can do that. And the world could help Ukraine, obviously, for that effort. But, you know, the loss of lives and all the displacement they experienced, the war trauma that the children of Ukraine have been experiencing, they are going to have some long-term effects. But in terms of the winners, 
of the war. Let's think about that. So I think the Ukraine war has certainly served its purpose to strengthen NATO, right? So nobody could have even imagined, dreamed that one day Sweden and Finland would want to become a NATO member. But it's now happening. Mm -hmm. uh, NATO member states are now spending a lot more on their defense budgets. And that's clearly good business for those that produce weapons. And let's not forget that so many weapons have already been used in this war, so they need to be replaced. So what that means, really new multi-billion contracts for the military, for that war machinery. So kind of in a fair, it's fair to say that there are a number of actors that benefit from this war, the war economy directly and indirectly. Mm -hmm. So not sure whether they like to see this war to come to an end anytime soon, in a way. If you are one of the NATO countries who are, for lack of a better way of putting this, next in line, you get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You want Russia to be weakened. And the longer this goes on, the weaker Russia becomes, right? So that's how I can see some of the NATO members, maybe quietly, and again, I'm spitballing here, right? This is the great thing about being a president and talking to an expert. <laughs> you get to correct me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but it seems to me that they would want to see Russia weakened. And the fact that Ukraine is holding its own, that they are inflicting a casualty toll on Russia, means that there is a higher calculation that Russia must have in terms of going after them next. In addition to that, I bet that those countries are quietly using this example of what's happening in Ukraine to build their own armies and infrastructure, to make their countries have more nationalistic pride. All of this kind of bodes well for the argument of them wanting this to continue a little longer. This war, in a way, is a great opportunity for NATO to say, look, the Atlantic security, the alliance we have, is so important. And Russia could invade the Baltic states or Scandinavian countries mm -hmm. anytime. So they need to be part of us, and they need to spend so much more money for their defense budgets. There were some seismic changes. Germany, you know, very first time, they started talk about the whole defense budget in a different way. That's right. right? Even discussions of building an army. Exactly. So in a way, yes, this war has really changed the, the whole geopolitics and the security framework in Europe, right? And the alliance between the U.S. and Europe really has strengthened because of this war, right? Because they now need each other to have that front against Russia. And, you know, really, for your earlier comment about uh, weakened Russia, I think what we need is a weakened Russian regime the Putin's regime. We don't want the weakened Russia because, in fact, this integration of Russia could really create many more humanitarian crises. And Russia, as a strong country, could be a great trade partner, right? So we need to look at this in a different way. This is not a win-lose kind of scenario. We need to really look at how Russians and Europeans and the U.S. could live side by side. You know, ultimately, we are sharing the same planet Earth, right? So this whole frame of, well, the Russians are bad and they are kind of a threat uh, for the Western security, these are different narratives that the warmongering comes up from time to time. And mm -hmm. we really need to be careful about this. We right. really need to question whether war is really the only way and means of sorting out differences. 
Oh, absolutely right. Absolutely right. Let's shift gears with it a little bit and talk about it in the context of what you do Mm -hmm. and in the context of the Carter School. Mm -hmm. So however this conflict ends, Mm -hmm. what must take place in terms of peace building, not only in Ukraine, Mm -hmm. but between Russia and the West? Once the war comes to an end, and it will sooner or later, because all wars come to an end at some point. Right. That will need to be a major peace building effort in terms of post-war reconstruction of Ukraine on the one hand. But also, as you say, the peace building effort between Russia and the West. Right. And I think that could only be done really by the participation of all sorts of different actors like the academia, civil society, the media, faith groups and so forth. I think that's really important. Probably that effort would be easier if Putin is not there anymore. So, <laughs> okay. So then such efforts would be easier to imagine and implement. But let's not forget that the rift between Russia and the West is deep at the moment. But within global politics, my perspective is that <coughs> alliances can change quickly. They might perhaps need a common enemy. So after the Cold War, for example, the so-called Islamic terrorism served that purpose for a while. The Russians and the West were working together. So you never know. Perhaps an alien invasion could be the right recipe for that. Aliens coming and invading (laughs) planet Earth could bring Russians Uh, and the West together. And everybody else, that'll bring us all together. I tell you that. (laughs) Carter School need a better solution than that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so you see my predicament here. It's going to be a really tough job, really. Because, That's exactly right. You know, what's, happen, what's happening, and in fact, you know, how long this war will be, right? So, you know, it's, as you say, it's already in, in its fifth month. And then I think if you don't find a political settlement by the end of this summer, the things will start to get bad to worse in the fall, right? And can easily turn into a protracted proxy war. And really with the kind of like the dire regional consequences. So the sooner we find a political settlement, it's going to be much, much better. And I think we are facing really the problem that, or the, the possibility of the Afghanization of the Ukrainian war. Hmm. We already see many foreign fighters in Ukraine. The West has been dumping so much military assistance. And yes, there is now a united front in the West for the support of Ukraine. But already some Western European countries are talking about the Ukraine fatigue. They are saying, well, perhaps some territorial concessions to end up with a peace deal would be necessary. So that united front has already shown some cracks. Mm-hmm. And with a kind of a cold winter coming in Europe, these voices would be even stronger. So with the protracted war, what we can see is that the proxies playing a lot more role. And when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in the late 1970s, it was the same. You know, the world uh, had a kind of like the joint front saying that how terrible the, what the Soviet Russians did and everything. Mm-hmm. And then they supported the Mujahideens for a number of years. And then once the Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan, then the Mujahideens started to fight against each other. 
That's exactly right. Right? That's exactly and right. And then the you know, different countries were supporting different Mujahideen groups. They had the territorial control. They started to exploit natural resources of the country. So it seems like a kind of far-fetched idea at the moment. And obviously, 1970s Afghanistan is very different than today's Ukraine. But what happens, for example, if uh, President Zelensky loses his control, right, or something happens to him, if there are different fractions, groups emerging, right, and Russia could easily use the white rule kind of methods, support some of these groups, and then we can really see that the Afghanization of the war, and especially with the foreign fighters, because, you know, some of them came from Libya, Syria, there are some mercenaries, and the problem with these guys is that once they are in your country, it's very mm-hmm. get, difficult to get rid of them, no, I because get it. they make a living with fighting. So that's, I think, the real danger we are facing. The, the way that the Ukraine war can prolong and become a real protracted proxy war. You know, the Carter School currently has a significant presence in Ukraine, mm-hmm. right? Having established a dialogue and difference program mm-hmm. at VN Karazin Kharkiv National University, mm-hmm. an effort that my understanding is is actually supported by the State Department mm-hmm. to support cultural, political and social understanding through community dialogue. Have you had any contact with the faculty at the university since the war started? Yes, and and obviously that program had to be stopped because of the war, and as a number of our Ukrainian colleagues have already left the country. But the Carter School has continued its presence in Ukraine through different programs. And one of our great advantages is that one of our professors, Dr. Karina Korostelina is from Ukraine. So she's been organizing a series of events with the name of bringing together a peacemaking, peacebuilding network for Ukraine. So in a way, we are getting ready mm-hmm. for the stage, the post-war stage. Because right. right now, what's happening, that's terrible. But we need to be ready for the post-war scenario, right? And often, that's the problem. You know, people talk about war and everything, you know, but the international community is often caught unprepared for post-war effort, right? We need to get these networks ready so that once the war is over, that will be an effective reconstruction of Ukraine and peace-building efforts. So at the same time, one of our other professors, Dr. Rich Rubinstein, has just been to Vatican to discuss peacemaking in Ukraine, organized by the UN Development Solutions Network. Meanwhile, our peace engineering lab initiated a program that maps the conflict dynamics by the application of sense-making program, which is a large-scale collection of narratives. So this initiative is undertaken by a group of faculty and students. And again, we plan to use the data from this study in our peace-building efforts once the war comes to an end. The Carter School is a national leader in conflict analysis and resolution, and its programs take students to national and global communities to engage with the world's most pressing challenges relative to conflict. Is that accurate relative to being a kind of semi-mission statement for the school? Yes. Our school's mission is very much that. It is really to have a transformative impact on conflict-affected societies across the world through our creative teaching, innovative research, and participatory engagement with all relevant stakeholders. Hmm. That's the overall mission as a school. 
itself. High level scholarship, obviously that matters, but relevance to conflict affected communities is as important as this, the scholarship. So we really need to ask ourselves the question of so what? So you can be really good school of conflict analysis and resolution, but for what purpose? Right? And that purpose is really building peace. And building peace doesn't mean much if you don't deal with the matters of justice. So the tagline of our school is the School for Peace and Conflict Resolution, but there we emphasize peace and justice and its relationship, right? So for the Carter School, that relevance to conflict affect communities is really important, and that's our mission. That's what we want to achieve. And the school is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. It started as a small center with a handful of faculty, but today it's a fully fledged school with programs at all undergraduate, graduate, and PhD levels with 400 students in a given year. And it's always been at the forefront of setting trends and setting the agenda for peace building and conflict resolution. So that legacy is really important for us. We are very proud of that. But now, what we are thinking, what we are planning is what we are going to do in the next 40 years. And within that, that transformative impact on conflict-affected societies is the number one goal for us. So let's talk about the other conflict that I think correlates directly to the school and one that I think the listeners out there would, would want to know more about. You know, one of the more impressive episodes for the school has to be the role it played in the Congo to help 21 armed groups, the Congolese government, the Congolese military, police, intelligence service, religious mm-hmm. leaders, and civil society groups to sign a peace accord. And that's a big leap mm-hmm. in a hopeful direction for a country truly has not seen peace for more than 30 years. Can you talk to everyone about the Carter School's role? We assisted, as the Carter School, we assisted local actors to broker that peace deal in South Kivu region of the DRC in December 2021, last year. And I want to really underline the word assisted, because our role has been really unique and innovative with this process. Because normally, outsiders dominate such a peacemaking space. But in this case, we facilitated it by providing our direct qualities of trust building and knowledge in the planning and implementation. Otherwise, the entire process was brought together and run by local NGOs and authorities. So I think that's really important. Number two, it's also important to mention that we made it clear from the beginning our position with not paying stipends to come to the negotiation table, because this is often the case. In many parts of the world, the international community pays parties to agree to come to negotiate. We haven't done that. And in fact, it was really surprising that many more armed groups than Hmm. what initially was anticipated turn up. Really? Yes, in December. (laughs) So So you had more armed groups than what you all thought, actually. Wow. Initially, we were planning to bring around 15 groups. That's what the earlier pre-peace accord process showed that they would have that interest you know, uh, to negotiate. But then when we start the process in December, six other groups just turned up. They said, we want to be part of this process. 
right? So it shows that money is not really the best incentive. The credibility, the trust that you create with the parties, they are a lot more important to be successful in these processes. And also from the right the beginning, we made sure that certain groups such as women and youth have been an integral part of the process. Because really, I cannot imagine any peace process by ignoring 50% of population, which is often the case. So I think this particular experience in the South Kivu of the DRC is going to be an exemplary methodology that we can repeat in other parts of the DRC and in other parts of the world. So I'm really proud of the fact that the Qatar School has been spearheading in this process, but assisting local actors. This is a locally-led peacemaking. So that's really important. Has there been any more movement with the priest process there? Is there a chance that they're going to slip back into the situation they had before you all help uh, bring about this peace? Right. So let's remember that up to 40% of peace agreements fail in the first three years. Okay. And 50% of them fail in the first five years. So we are talking about really fragile processes, right? Because considering that the belligerents have been fighting for years or decades in some cases, it's not that easy to transform that environment. But in this very case... That has been happening a lot since the peace agreement in December. So one of the things that we are doing right now is to move to the second stage in order to transition from peacemaking to peace building. Hmm. And within that, one of the key challenges is what to do with ex-combatants, right? So how they can go back home, right? And how they would stop fighting. So normally... The international community would deal with them individually. They would provide ex-combatants some incentive programs like the vocational training, etc. Right? So we said, no, we are not going to do that. What we are doing there is to support the receiving communities. So we are working with local villages and we are facilitating the opportunities for them so that they can regenerate economic opportunities for themselves. In return, they are going to take those returning ex-combatants, and in this way, they will all benefit from our assistance. Right? I think that's really important because sometimes peace-building efforts create so much resentment between different groups in war-affected areas, and we don't want that. We don't want to give the message that, well, we are rewarding ex-combatants. Well done. They've done a great job. They've fought. They killed civilians, and now we are going to assist them in their reintegration. That really sends the wrong message. Instead, we are supporting local communities so that they can actually play an active role in the reintegration of ex-combatants. So in the current process, that's what we are doing, and it's going really well. That is really cool. So there's this guy out there, uh, (laughs) Milt Lorenstein, Mm -hmm. who has been a huge factor in this effort. Milt is a former CEO of several successful organizations, and he's the co-founder and principal funder of the Purdue Peace Project. Can you talk about his involvement and how he's helped? Look, Milt Lundstein, he has an invincible passion for peacemaking. And we've been working with him as our main donor for our Better Evidence Project and locally-led peacemaking initiatives for over now two years. And in fact, he's not just a donor. 
He's very much part of our Carter School community. And I must say his passion for stopping wars is infectious. So really, we are so lucky to have him as a donor, but as an individual, because peacemaking and peace building really starts with the simple premise. You need to believe in peace, mm-hmm. right? And to do that, you need resources. Right. And MILT has been there for us to come up with innovative ways of peacemaking and supporting uh, peacemaking, peacebuilding efforts in a different way. Because honestly, the contemporary approach by the international community often fails. We need to reimagine that space. And this is why I think the Carter School plays such an important role. We are an academic institution. We have the cutting-edge knowledge. So having the opportunity of applying that in the field through the funding such that MILT has provided is so important for us. And we are eternally grateful for donors like MILT and others for giving us that opportunity. No, that's great. That is great. I'm also interested in this initiative that you've undertaken with MILT in creating a repository for peacekeeping evidence. It sounds as if that would be a first of its kind. Can you give us some background? Yes. Look, that is our Better Evidence Project. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we are aiming to create one of the largest repositories of its kind where policymakers and practitioners could find thousands of examples and evidence for resolving conflict and building peace. And why that matters is because we don't want them to make the same mistakes, right? We want them to start from a point that they can actually plan their programs based on good evidence. And that repository, we want that to be really a place, a hub, where policymakers, practitioners could meet with each other. It's almost like matchmaking kind of platform, right? So that if you have a program in a certain country and you are looking for a certain type of expertise, that kind of roster of experts will be available in that hub. So Better Evidence Project, I think, will play a very significant role to improve our practice so that in the future when we do peacemaking and peacebuilding, it's not going to be just starting from scratch. It's not going to be like reinventing the wheel, right? It's going to be like, okay, so this is what has happened in these countries. And we are providing that information in an analytical way, accessible way for policymakers and practitioners because that's often the gap between Mm. academia and practice because we produce all these wonderful articles, books, etc., right? But I don't know whether they really read them because they are not really accessible to them. So providing evidence in a way that they can just read the executive summary, they can just get the main points, that is really a good way of building bridges with practitioners. So that project, I think, is going to be really important, a signatory product of the Carter School to reach out to the practice of peace building. So that's really important for us. And one of our faculties, Dr. Susan Allen, has been spearheading that, as well as playing an active role of peacemaking efforts in the South Caucasus region. So that's the type of faculty we have at the Carter School, very much connected with the practice. The school also works on a local level here in Virginia Mm -hmm. concerning conflict resolution in schools. 
for us, working with local communities here in our immediate back garden, so to speak, I think it's really important. So dealing with the peace and security challenges globally is important, but we shouldn't forget what's happening in this country. For example, beginning in January 2020, we started to work with Arlington County to incorporate restorative justice practices into schools, legal systems, and community uh, as part of our Transition Justice Peace Lab. Another project that we are working on at the moment is the Fairfax City, and that's for the review of police practices, as well as a number of other projects that involves local schools and peace education matters. So in the scope of restorative justice and police reform and schools, we have a number of current projects in our immediate locality. And for us, that really matters, like as I mentioned earlier, our relevance for local communities. And we are proud of the fact that we consider ourselves as doers. And being a school at a public university, we feel an extra level of obligation to create waves of impact at the community level. So all these projects are our way of thanking our communities for providing us this context. And there's so much to do, really, in this country. And the Carter School has that resources and the knowledge to work with different partners on these different challenges. So given what you're doing in this very, very important area, I would expect that the students, the graduates from the Carter School are off doing some great things. Mm -hmm. Do you track what your students are doing once they graduate? We do. And look, to start with, I'm very proud of the fact that our graduates have a much higher employability rate than many other disciplines. Hmm. Perhaps that's not surprising, considering that they could apply conflict analysis and resolution skills in all sorts of different sectors and professions. So they work for international humanitarian and development organizations. They work for governments, local authorities. They work as HR diversity or social justice experts. They run civil society organizations. They run peace processes. They are mediators, facilitators, and coaches for conflict resolution. They sometimes prevent genocide to take place, as we did in Burundi. They sometimes become foreign ministers in war-torn countries, as is the case with the foreign minister of Libya at the moment. Najla Almangush is about to finish her PhD with us, and she is the serving foreign minister of Libya. And in fact, let me share with you another important fact. Most of peace and conflict studies programs in the U.S. and beyond have actually been funded by our graduates. So we have an amazing footprint in our academic discipline, too. So we have around 2,000 alumni living in different parts of the world. And I think that's a kind of really a force to reckon with. And that is one of our major assets as a Carter School. And we are in close touch with them. And they are part of our research and consultancy projects. We imagine the future of peacemaking and peace building together. So I believe that the school like ours can only really achieve its goal of having that transformational impact on conflict-affected communities if we are able to bring all our capacities, including our alumni, to the table and use it effectively. Amazing. So you know we're dealing with gun violence in this country. What are some of the research that Carter School is involved with in this space? One of our key responses to that 
has been led by Dr. Patricia Molden with her Dialogue and Difference project, which organizes dialogue events focusing on current and emerging topics and concerns. So in relation to the issue of guns and violence, the project began to explore these issues as back as 2013 with the event Gun Culture and Violence, How Have We Adapted?, and then in 2016, we organized another one, the Perception of Guns Dialogue. And then the topic emerged again in fall 2016 when we hosted the Alternatives to Violence open mic. And this event was, I think, one of our most powerful and emotional events hmm. as individuals shared their experiences, fears, and concerns in a safe and accepting environment. And in fall 2019, the project mounted two gun-focused events, again looking at those different challenges with that. So we see our role really to provide that platform to talk about gun violence in a sensible way because it's such a polarizing issue. And I think it's really important to bring like-minded people to talk about those matters in a sensible way. But also kind of it's important to provide platform where people can express their fears and also emotions, right? So the Dialogue and Difference Project provides that ideal environment. It incorporates the participation of our students. They act as the mediators and facilitators in that process. So that is what we do right now. But I think there's a lot more to do there, and especially with our experience around social justice, transformation of violence. We could play a lot more active role working as part of a, I think, larger network. This issue will require the participation of many different actors. And we need to take this from the binary of whether or not we can change the law and what we can do about that. I think we need to really think about what other actors could do about this what kind of alternatives we can bring and how we can make sure that the gun violence is considered as a public health issue in this country, right? That's right. So as it was with smoking years ago, right, you know, nobody could have imagined that smoking could have been so out of society, right? I mean, you know, today smoking is not really an issue anymore, right? Because I remember, you know, when I was growing up, you could smoke even on trains and planes. For That's say, right. Right? That and, is absolutely right. But now, I mean, you know, you cannot even think about that. So similarly, I think we can have similar approach in that we can bring the public in this discourse and really imagining the roles of the private sector, civil society, faith groups, etc., etc., right? What they can do about the gun violence. I think that's the kind of discussion we need to have. So that's what we are planning to put a lot more emphasis in our activities as a Carter School. Oh, that's great. So last question here. So where do we stand in 2022 regarding the hard work of peace building and conflict analysis? Do you feel frustrated or hopeful? Look, I'm a professor of peace studies and dean of a school working on peace and conflict resolution. Uh, so I'm hopeful despite many peace and security challenges we face globally. 
I'm hopeful because this is the only way we could become curious about peace. Because curiosity, I think, for me, is the beginning of everything. And peace and peacemaking is a process that we got to be curious about. And we need to be able to dream first what we could achieve by being better at conflict resolution and peace building. With that premise, I'm hopeful because I trust the youth and our students and what they could achieve as change makers. So, yes, I'm hopeful. Well, good to know that there is always hope. That's going to wrap things up here at Access to Excellence. I'd like to thank Dean Alp, the dean of the George Mason University's Jimmy and Rosalind Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution for spending some time with us. I'm Mason President Gregory Washington saying until next time, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.